I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Uh, The dignity of man. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks. These are names everybody in America knows. When we think of worthy but exceptionally difficult struggles for social and economic justice, these names come to mind. Instead of violence, they pioneered the use of creative and effective nonviolence. Theirs were patient yet determined struggles against overwhelming odds, and the victories they achieved are lessons for all of us who followed them. And yet, who ever heard of Dale Iron or Arthur Griffith? Not me for sure. Happenings 100 years ago in January 1919, relative to proving the power of nonviolence resistance, are practically unknown in America, but in truth, their success in taking on an exceptionally powerful British military a hundred years ago inspired Gandhi and Martin Luther King, who themselves credited that movement for Irish independence and self-government. Now, as you've heard me say, the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history, but I really wish we would, and I'm not about to stop trying, because not learning It's just too high a price to pay for our current challenges. And as formerly Great Britain struggles mightily to deal with its self-imposed Brexit challenge while having its economic challenges, Ireland these days is free from that nonsense because they are a separate nation, a republic. How they achieve that is a remarkably bloody history. But while violence was certainly part of the movement for liberation from British oppression and control, the use of nonviolence was something new and relatively untested. The Irish actually pioneered this great tradition of active nonviolent resistance. It showed itself to be effective in ways mere violence was not. We can all benefit today from learning from this hidden history. I'm very pleased today. Our guest is David C. Cochran, professor of politics, director of the Cusera Center and co-director of the Peace and Justice Minor at Loris College in Iowa. Thank you so much for being with us, Professor Cochran. It's my pleasure to be with you. He has written an article for Waging Nonviolence titled The Irish Revolution's Overlooked History of Nonviolent Resistance. And I look like looking into overlooked history. Ireland today is, of course, a republic, meaning of the people, but it was not always that way. Though the UK today appears to be in a shambles over Brexit, the old phrase was, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And there have been cultural and political struggles in pretty much all of their former empire. Sometimes violent, sometimes aggressive nonviolent resistance. Today we're going to talk about a bit about the very gradual transformation from violence to nonviolence. What was the status of Ireland in the late 1700s where our story begins? It's 
kind of interesting if you go back. Ireland was uh, England, Great Britain's first colony, um, and in many ways, uh, if you uh, consider Northern Ireland still um, sort of a, a colonized part, as some Republicans do, then uh, it might be their last colony. So um, by the um, late um, 1700s, uh, early uh, 19th century, it, all of Ireland was still a part of the, the British crown. It was the um, ruled by Parliament and by the king, so it was a, a, um, a colonial possession of, of Great Britain. Yes, indeed, and uh, they like their possessions. I guess we all do. <laughs> what, you write that the significance, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, the significance of Dale Iran's founding on January 21st, 1919, is often underappreciated. That is unfortunate. Um, what is it, and why is it unfortunate? Well, I think it's it's unfortunate that it's underappreciated because, as you said in your intro, the the separation of Ireland from Great Britain, gaining its independence at least in the the twenty six counties that are now the Republic, was uh, was a violent, bloody affair, um, and so we tend to focus on that. But um, I argue that there was a very powerful, very significant nonviolent resistance element that was also part of it, and that tends to get overlooked. So. Dalaran, which is the the Irish Parliament, um, was illegally established as part of this nonviolent parallel yeah. government movement a um, hundred years ago, as you said in January. Um, so that anniversary, I thought, was a nice way to reflect on this underappreciated role of nonviolence. Violence gets all the attention, right? But nonviolence does a lot of the, the heavy lifting when it comes to liberation movements. I think. Oh my goodness, you're so right that you know so much of, of TV news is theater. And yeah. violence makes for great, colorful theater. Nonviolence, eh, not so interesting. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yep. So if you watch, you know, uh, Hollywood movies like Michael Collins, which deals right. with the independence of Ireland from Great Britain, it's all about the, the War of Independence, which did happen, but it kind of undersells the, the true powerful movements of nonviolent resistance and non-cooperation that's actually going on at the same time. Now, nearly everyone in America has heard of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. They made a lot of news. It was in the 70s and 80s, I guess. Their reputation right. is for violence. Frankly, some really awful stuff. And there was, you know, hunger strikes as well. Take us back, please, to the roots. The Easter Monday Rising of 1916 was not the beginning. You say it actually all started in the first half of the 19th century, what, tell us about what conditions brought on this anger at the British. So the British, of course, had been in Ireland for centuries, um, and they had uh, ruled it militarily. They had um, created a plantation in Ulster, which is northern Ireland today, by moving um, English and Scottish Protestants and giving them land. So so the the conflict goes back centuries and was uh, um, you know very complex and very bitter. By the early 19th century, Britain had eliminated uh, Ireland for a while. It had its own parliament, even though it was under the rule of, of the king in London. Mm-hmm. Um, they had eliminated uh, the Irish parliament and created the Act of Union, which basically said Westminster, the, the British parliament, now rules all of England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland as one unified political entity. So the Irish, um, many of most resisted this. They, they saw it as a foreign occupation. And so there was a series of violent risings, occasional rebellions, that were usually crushed pretty easily by the British. It did create these romantic figures like Wolf Tone and Robert Emmett and others, 
um, who would, you know, be executed and be martyred for the cause of, of Irish freedom. Um, so they get a lot of the attention. If you go to Dublin today, you'll see you know, plaques and memorials to these people as well. Um, but really, what was also happening in the 19th century was nonviolent, mass-based resistance movements. Some of them were working within the British system, like Daniel O'Connell's Catholic Emancipation Movement, which was sort of a, one of the first mass movements in the West, um, big public rallies, petitions, um, that eventually secured uh, civil and political rights for Irish Catholics as well as Irish Protestants. But for me, more interesting was a, an illegal kind of, but still nonviolent, revolutionary resistance movement, such as rent strikes, uh-huh. um, boycotts, um, shunning of uh, collaborators with British rule, um, these kinds of things that really started rising up in the 19th century. Um, in fact, um, uh, many of your listeners might not know that the, the term boycott yeah, so um, actually was named for a Captain Charles Boycott, who was a British land agent. The, the land was mainly all owned by uh, landlords who lived in England, right. but worked by Irish um, tenant farmers. Uh, and so as part of this revolutionary nonviolent movement to secure land for the Irish themselves, they would um, um, refuse to cooperate with the British land agents who would bring in the harvest and collect the rents. Mm. And one of these guys, Charles Boycott, um, in County Mayo, um, was shunned by his community uh, because he was collecting rents and bringing in the harvest for the absentee British landlord. And so that's where we get the term boycott, is basically refusing to cooperate with authority figures who need your cooperation to um, secure their power. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, uh, powers that rely on the use of violence are, are pretty good at that. <laughs> you know, when mm-hmm. they're take, when they're taken on violent violently, uh, they're quite skilled and they have a massive amount of arms. But it befuddles them when people say go limp or just have you know something nonviolent. They don't know what to do. And to right. me, to me, that's that's the beauty of it. Now, I want to ask. You know, the the impression is that you know Protestant. England versus Catholic Ireland. I get the sense that there's a bit of class struggle, perhaps more important than, than the uh, religious uh, uh, struggle. I mean, the British... Yeah, certainly. In, uh, historically in Ireland, the, the, the Protestant, um, uh, sort of Anglo-Protestant um, aristocracy was definitely the wealthier class. Um, they were the minority, so most um, um, Irish men and women were Catholic, um, uh, poor, um, and very rural, whereas the the ruling class tended to uh, be Protestant and English or Scottish. Um, although, again, in the North, you had a Protestant working class that was of English or Scottish descent, and that's sort of the seeds of the continuing conflicts in the North today is where you had two relatively large um, working class populations uh, that saw themselves divided along ethnic and religious lines. So there definitely was a class dimension as well. Um, as well as an ethnic nationalist dimension. Uh huh. Yeah, there often is, and I, I, right. I, I someday I'd like to find out why uh, India was the jewel in the crown, and why you know they were so afraid of Irish independence that maybe <gasps> the Indians might pick that up as well. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of connections uh, between um, our, the uh, the liberation movement in Ireland and the liberation movement in, in India, and the British saw themselves vulnerable on both fronts. Ah, uh, shucks. Too bad, huh? 
<laughs> I feel bad for him. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about the history and the importance of nonviolent resistance and how it effective we, it can be. We're looking back 100 years ago to uh, the use of nonviolence in Ireland uh, in the eventually successful uh, creation of the Republic. Our guest today is David C. Cochran, professor of politics, who has written an article about the Irish Revolution's overlooked history of nonviolent resistance. And back then, there were what you call romantic nationalist heroes, which were easily suppressed, end of quote. One example you cite is the battle, the battle of Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch. I don't know the story, but I believe the telling of it will provide a sense how often this early violent resistance turned out for the Irish. Yeah, and I think this is a good example of what you mentioned, is violence tends to get the attention. A lot of people just assume violence is more effective, but oftentimes when you look at um, the statistical success rates of violent revolutionary movements, they tend to be easily suppressed in many cases. So the Irish case is a great example. Wolf Tones in um, 1798 and Robert Emerson in 1803, and then in 1848 as revolutions were sweeping the rest of Europe, there was a rising in Ireland. This is the same time as the famine as well um, in the southern part of the country. And it, um, several people gathered arms and attacked some local uh, police stations, and it was easily suppressed. And eventually they, the rebels retreated to uh, this farm, uh, Widow McCormick's Cabbage Patch, uh, where they were, uh, there's troops around the house and easily uh, crushed them. So there's this idea that these risings are are. Um, disorganized, um, easily um, crushed. And that's true even of the most famous rising, the 1916 right. Easter Rising, right. which many Irish see as the, the beginning of the, the final revolutionary movement. It was a, uh, a shambles as far as a, a, a military operation, and it was easily crushed by, by British troops. And it was only the heavy-handed um, response of the British destroying most of Dublin and executing the leaders of the rising that actually then turned the British again or turned Ireland um, more radicalized so the actual violent revolt of Easter Monday 1916 was 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 pretty pretty pathetic as far as a, an actual armed rising goes but it was the political consequences of it and that's where I argue nonviolence really came into its own um, even in an underappreciated way that helped finally tip um, the, the balance against the British and force them to to leave most of Ireland. You know, public opinion, you know, the, the rulers, old-fashioned rulers, they never care really about public opinion until <laughs> they make some mistakes like that. There was not good public relations the way they put down the uh, violent uh, uprising. It you know it recruits. It goes on today when. Frankly, in my opinion, when the U.S. Uh, you know bombs uh, people far away using drones and things like that, and kills you know wedding parties and stuff like that, uh, it makes people angry. It recruits for the other side. And right, exactly. It has a uh, violence can have a backfire effect. Somehow, it seems the 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 holders of the real violent power have a hard time learning that. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is this uh, myth. Uh, the, um, you know, oftentimes, uh, people who advocate nonviolence are considered to be utopian, right? Um, right. I, I believe that believers in violence are the true utopians. There is this myth that violence solves problems or can, can effectively gain things. But as the British learned in India and, and elsewhere, you can't rule... Um, a people unless they cooperate with that rule. Yes. And this was Gandhi's insight. He said, a few thousand people can't rule all of India unless we, the Indians, allow it. 
and once we stop cooperating with them, then that rule evaporates. Very nice. It's a good, it's a good exciting history, I must say. You refer to within the struggle for for uh, Irish uh, independence, the physical force nationalists who are opposed by the constitutional nationalists. Tell us about them, please, and their differing tactics and strategies. Sure. So you have, it's kind of the classic revolutionary debate sometimes. You have the physical force nationalists where people like Wolf Tome or Robert Emmett or the Fenians who advocated violent overthrow. Um, so they would launch these risings and these rebellions that were pretty easily crushed. And then the constitutional nationalists actually advocated working through the British system, so following legally um, legal channels. And once um, Irish people got the right to vote in the 19th century, they started sending members, Irish members, to Parliament. And so these, these members of, of the British Parliament, representing Ireland, kind of fused together in one of the first modern political parties, the Irish Parliamentary Party, and they basically said, okay, we can use our leverage inside the system to get more rights for, British, for uh, Irish farmers and eventually some kind of home rule, which was this idea of a more autonomous not really independence, but close to independence. Um, so it was kind of a classic, the, the, the guys with the guns outside and then the people inside trying to work the system. Um, and what I argue that is overlooked is this third nonviolent but outside the system kind of pressure strikes, boycotts, parallel government, these kinds of things. So usually if you read a history of Irish nationalism, it's framed in the, the physical force violent rebellions versus the parliamentary party working within the British system. But I think this third outside the system but still nonviolent strand is really important as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was remembering uh, back in the anti-nuclear late 70s uh, as part of the uh, Clamshell Alliance, and there were people yeah. who wanted to, uh, I mean, it's not particularly violent to cut the fences and have some, you know, physical basically attack on, on the premises. Others of us felt, well, we should perhaps run for office, you know, cut our hair, vote, and participate in the system. And yeah, the plant was eventually built, but uh, in terms of, you know, Irish history, uh, it seems there was that whole civil war, which was really ugly between uh, the free staters and the hardcore Republicans, uh, that I mean, it's it's too complicated to get into probably, but there were you know a few different strains of what's going to work and what's not going to work. If I remember correctly, and I may not, some of the people who were initially for the violent revolution uh, and the full you know non well non cooperation with with the crown, eventually uh, went over to the uh, the non violent uh, 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 faction. Is that sort of correct? Maybe. Yeah, so a lot of the, so after the Easter Rising, um, when the British crushed it, that's when you start to get this 10-year period of, of revolutionary activity, um, and that's where you get the emergence of Sinn Féin, which is the party right. that Arthur Griffith founded. Um, and what happens is a lot of them are, they embrace nonviolence not because they're pacifists, but for tactical reasons. And this is true right. of nonviolent movements around the world. A lot of people who use nonviolence use it because it's more effective in the circumstances, not because they're committed pacifists. So a lot of them made the calculation that the British continue to crush armed risings, so what we need to do is come up with these nonviolent techniques to undercut their legitimacy and power um, and basically make Ireland ungovernable uh -huh. um, so that they have to give up and, 
and leave. Daniel so oh, embraced nonviolence okay. for this tactical reason, not because they were committed pacifists. Right. That's important, the tactics. I mean, you want to win. Yeah, I, right. It's better to win than to lose. I've tried them right. both. It really is. <laughs> Unless you have... Donald Trump's version of winning, and that's everybody <laughs> oh, loses. Oh, depends on what you're trying to win. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, Daniel O'Connell's Catholic Emancipation Movement won civil and political rights for Irish Catholics in the first half of the 19th century. As the 20th century opened, the British finally granted home rule in 1914. What did that mean for the average person, and how did that go over with the more aggressive uh, uh, Republicans? And then why did the British then suspend home rule? A little bit uh, complicated here, but if you would, please. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's an interesting example of how violence can um, radicalize. Violence can kind of breed violence. So eventually the, the British finally decided we need to grant home rule, this kind of not full autonomy, but large autonomy to They'll still be under the British crown, but yeah. largely self-governing in Ireland. Um, however, um, many Protestants in the North, in Ulster to what is today Northern Ireland, um, didn't like that. So you already had a conflict in Ireland between the South and the North over home rule. 1914, World War I breaks out, and so the British decide to suspend home rule for the duration of the war. Uh, and, of course, people expected the war to be over relatively yeah. quickly, and, and, of course, it wasn't. So in the, the atmosphere of militarization that swept through Europe, um, home rule suspended that um, many people in the South see this as a betrayal. Uh, the North, uh, armed militias arise, the Ulster Defense Force, so you have a lot of um, armed militias arise to resist home rule. You have armed militias in the South arise to try and protect home rule. And so you get um, basically the, this militarization of Irish society as a result of World War I mm. and the suspension of home rule, and that kind of lays the seeds for the descent into armed conflict um, in in the wake of the Easter Rising and the I, the rise of the IRA and things like that, um, so it was really World War One that militarized the conflict and led away from what could have been a, a relatively peaceful transition um, to some kind of independent Ireland, uh, still united even to a, a bloody conflict and a divided Ireland that still is is in conflict today. Well, that's really interesting. As, as regular listeners know, I'm fascinated by the First World War. And it, it seems that one of the attractive uh, uh, parts for the British rulers to get into the war on the continent was it could take the focus off of Ireland. And it was very right. timely in 1914. So interesting, you were saying that had the war not happened, and you know, I mean, a lot of Irish young men were eager to get into the the Great War as well, yeah. um, unfortunately. But uh, so, how did that affect what they called the the Irish problem? Uh, yeah, interesting, you say that it might have been settled differently had it not been for the participation in the First World War. There's no guarantees, of course, as you know, as a student of history, counterfactuals sure. are you know you can't prove them. Oh, but the great um, fun. There certainly was a, a divide between most of Ireland wanting independence and a significant population in the north that wanted to stay part of the British system. So there could have been partition or conflict either way, but a, a more gradual um, huh. uh, sort of uh, uh, constitutional uh, pushed along by nonviolent resistance could have led to... Um, less of a cycle of violence on all sides, and much like, I mean, you, you mentioned the sun didn't set on the British Empire, so lots of countries gained their independence from England without being partitioned. Mm. 
um, some violently like us, but most nonviolently like Canada, Australia, uh, India, places like that, were able to gain their independence nonviolently, or largely nonviolently. So there, you know, some historians say it, things could have turned out in Ireland differently, especially avoiding the partition and the troubles that mm. have um, riven that part of Ireland ever since. Fascinating. I, I do enjoy talking about the what-ifs of history. There's yeah, so many, especially around the First World War. Now, yeah. Ireland was and beautifully remains largely agricultural. I was there once. I, I need I lo- beautiful. It's just gorgeous. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Land reform has often been a major point of contention in the Irish struggle. It's not something on the tips of people's tongues in America in the 21st century, land reform. What does that phrase mean? And if you would just take a few minutes to tell us why it was such a major focus for the Irish people. What did the Brits want to maintain, and what did the Irish want relative to land reform? Yeah, that's a good point. So um, over the course of the, the 18th century, you had what were called the penal laws, which, um, after England had secured its hold on Ireland, there was a rebellion in um, the late um, 17th century in the Battle of the Boyne. Um, James uh, was defeated by William of Orange, which is why in Northern Ireland you have the Orange Orders now. Uh Um, But anyway, the the British generally disenfranchised Irish landowners and gave their land over to absentee landlords in England. So there was this long-simmering injustice in the Irish mind that most of us live on the land, we work the land, but we don't own the land. Our, our profits are taken by foreign landlords. Add to that the trauma of the Great Potato Famine yes. in the 1840s and 50s, and you have this really traumatic, um, almost genocidal kind of experience of, of, of death and emigration and the British policies essentially letting the Irish starve. Yeah. Um, and so afterwards, that's where you get this movement to take back the land for the actual farmers who are working it. Um, and you have both um, people working in the system, like the Irish Parliamentary Party, but also you've got the Land League and the Ladies' Land League, boycotts, rent strikes. There is some vigilante violence against uh, British landlords. And so over a 20- to 30-year period, a lot of the land actually does get transferred from British owners back to the actual tenant farmers who are working it in the Irish countryside. And as you said, Ireland at this time is almost, not exclusively, but largely rural. It doesn't have much of an industrial base except in the north around Belfast. So it really is, the the land is really at the center of the Irish identity and experience. And so uh, transferring that land from British uh, absentee landlords to the actual farmers is is a big part of the process. And people, of course, have heard of the potato famine, but most people think, well, it was just, you know, the, it was a bad year for, for the agriculture there. How, my understanding is the British really, uh, as you said, let people starve, let the famine happen. Shed a little bit of light on that, please. Yeah, there was an idea, and this won't be uh, um, too foreign to some ideas that are still around in our political rhetoric, is that uh, the poor are responsible for their own suffering. So the British saw the Irish as lazy. Um, as um, not really having a good work ethic, as being backwards. And so many of them saw the famine as a way to teach the Irish um, a lesson, teach them how to be good, upstanding, hardworking um, Englishmen. <laughs> uh, and so they, they um, were still importing famously. Um, Ireland still imported food out of Ireland during the famine to feed British, yeah. um, 
while many of the Irish were actually starving, uh, wheat and hogs and cattle were being exported out of Ireland to, to, to Britain. So for many Irish, they, they didn't see the famine as some kind of natural disaster. They saw it as an actual engineered um, mass killing, um, um, supported by this kind of laissez-faire capitalist work ethic um, idea that the British had at the time, and, and of course many people still do today, blaming the poor for their own suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, I don't like that kind of mindset, but you're right, it's still it's still around. People do yeah, actually believe yeah. that. And instead of helping mm-hmm. people, you know, uh, a small group of armed rebels seized key positions in Dublin on Easter Monday in 1916. Uh, what was their demand? What did the British do, and how did that reaction go down in Ireland? I guess that was the one with, was that the one with Michael Collins and uh, a great deal of violence? Yeah, so this is, uh, uh, Michael Collins was involved in the Rising. It was led by Patrick Pierce and uh, Eamon de Valera and some others, and it was, um, it's still kind of controversial. I took a group of students in 1916 to Ireland to sort of uh, study it as the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the Easter Rising, and it was, um, it was the the immediate goal was to proclaim independence. So this is where the Irish kind of declaration of independence that still is part of part of the Irish national identity comes from. And they took over the general post office, and they um, Patrick Pierce came on the steps and read this declaration of independence. He, de- he declared a republic. Uh, many people in Dublin thought, "What's going on? This is kind of crazy." Um, like many Easter Risings, it was poorly planned. Part of it was canceled, so a lot of people didn't come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the, the British easily crushed it within a few days, but they did so in such a heavy-handed way. Most of Dublin was burned, or central Dublin was burned. And then, controversially, they, they rounded up and executed all the leaders of the Rising, except for Eamon de Valera, who was born in Brooklyn and had American citizenship. So that saved him. Uh, he went on to become the president of Independent Ireland later. Uh, but it was this mass arrests, um, mass executions that eventually angered British people and turned them um, against the British enough that you would have the emergence of Sinn Féin, which was the nonviolent resistance movement led by Arthur Griffith, but also the IRA, which launched a guerrilla war against uh, British soldiers and, and police units. And so it was really the the heavy-handed crushing of the rising and the creation of these martyrs. And it's very, the imagery gets very Catholic in a Catholic country and the, the blood sacrifice Saints. and all the rest of it. So it, it becomes kind of this national mythology. Um, and if you go to Dublin today, most of the streets and train stations um, will bear the names of a lot of these executed leaders of, of the rising. Oh, yes, there's nothing like martyrs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so effective. I don't know why the other side doesn't realize that. If you just yeah. tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are talking with uh, Professor David Cochran, uh, professor of politics, about nonviolence, the power of nonviolence, more powerful oftentimes than violent resistance. And we're talking about a little bit of the hidden history of the uh, nonviolent struggle in Ireland. And you talk, you mentioned the uh, the. the you know, monuments in Dublin and the the railway stations. You know, the railroad was really important back 100 years ago. I mean, it still is, but much more so back then. Uh, there was, during the First World War, yet again, as with all over the world, on, on our side, shall we say, there was resistance. People thought, hmm, this isn't such a, a great thing to be fighting for. You know, working people killing working people. But one of the effective, very creative, nonviolent methods 
by the Irish resistance to the official war effort was employed by railway workers. That's some pretty cool stuff. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So once, uh, so the, the, the way the British could maintain control of Ireland was they had to be able to move troops around. Uh, so, for example, when they crushed the Easter Rising, they had to bring troops from other parts of Ireland in. Um, and once the rebellion was underway, um, they needed a lot more troops to move around. Um, so they needed the railroads to, to take troops and munitions, and many railroad workers would go on strike. There was almost a year-long strike uh, in 1918, 1919. Cool. Um, so the British were, were crippled in their ability to, to get um, people and material to places they needed to go, uh, which really made it, part, again, part of what nonviolence is about is making a country ungovernable. Um, and so part of shutting down the railway systems was one way to do that. Um, and there were also um, industrial strikes in Dublin, um, there was a general strike in Limerick that uh, forced the British to lift martial law at one point. Um, so there were uh, some, even though Ireland wasn't terribly industrialized, there was enough workers in key places that strikes could be effective in crippling the British ability to respond. Oh, that, that, these are fun stories. I, mean, I It's really fun to me. I mean, a lot of people died, but the power of nonviolence, the power of unions, people forget about the power of organized labor, but there's there's an example there, and that took some real... Chutzpah, shall we say? That's an Irish Catholic word, isn't it? Chutzpah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Easily translatable. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, as the Great War dragged on, a lot of British soldiers died, and they were yeah. the, the the government of England was re, was desperate for replacement soldiers. What, what was the reaction in Ireland to the call up? What happened there? Yeah. So this is a, another great example of how nonviolence can find a strategic weakness. Um, and exploit it. So at the beginning of the war, like you mentioned earlier, there was um, a lot of enthusiasm among um, Irish young men oh, to sign sorry. up for this glorious cause or whatever. Yeah. Um, and especially in the North, um, there was always strong support. But by the end of the war, by 1917 and then early 1918, the British really were desperate for more soldiers to feed into this, you know, death machine at the front. Yeah. So they eventually tried to institute conscription in Ireland. Uh, there's a this you know, a lot of young men there, and, and this is a, a force they saw they could use. And this is where, basically, Sinn Féin led a nationwide boycott of um, conscription movements. There was one Sunday after Sunday Mass that outside the churches, two million people signed promises not to cooperate with British conscription. Wow. And the British, ultimately, they arrested the leaders, they were throwing people in prison, but they ultimately were unable to implement conscription in Ireland, so they were not able to to address this shortage of soldiers that they were they were finding very desperate. <laughs> that's so creative. Two million people. That's that's a lot of people. And the power of nonviolence. You know, a lot of people don't know. I think certain powers that be don't want us to know the power of nonviolence. Um, and of course, we you know we've all heard about uh, the IRA and the troubles in the late twentieth century. Tell us, please, about the birth of. Sean Fain, I probably pronounced it wrong, what it means, and its founder, Arthur Griffith. Nobody over here has heard of Arthur Griffith. Tell us about the birth of Sean Fain and Arthur Griffith. Sure. So um, Arthur Griffith was a, uh, a nationalist leader. Um, at the time, he, he um, did not like the, the Irish Parliamentary Party, uh, their strategy of working with the British. So he thought, we need to, to overthrow British rule. But he thought violence was ineffective. It, had, it just hadn't worked in the past. So he starts developing this philosophy of nonviolent resistance. So Sinn Féin is Irish for ourselves. And the idea is we will 
achieve political and economic independence by basically ignoring British power, by mm-hmm. stopping, refusing co- to cooperate with British power. Uh, and this is where uh, Nehru, one of the leaders of the, the Indian independence movement and a close ally of Gandhi, came to a Sinn Féin meeting in 1905-1906 and kind of got this idea that, yeah, you can just basically start acting as if the oppressive power no longer exists. Yeah. And if you stop cooperating with them, then it makes it very difficult for them to actually govern. So he, he came up with this idea um, eventually, and this is kind of the key, of uh, abstentionism. And he sort of came up with this idea that, okay, uh, we are electing Irish members to Parliament. Right. So we're having these elections, and we're sending Irish people to the British Parliament. What if instead... Once someone was elected, they refused to go to the British Parliament and instead declared themselves the government of an independent Ireland. Just basically started wow. behaving as if British rule no longer exists, and now we have a government and we're going to rule ourselves. And that's where Dal Aaron, which is the Irish Parliament, came from. Sinn Féin candidates in 1918. So elections were also suspended during World War One, not just the, uh, the um, Free State, so you had this whole period where there weren't elections, and then in 1918, Sinn Féin runs all these candidates. They win election, and instead of getting on a boat and going to Westminster, they basically gathered in Dublin at Mansion House and said, hey, by the way, we're now the independent Irish government, and they started acting like a government, um, even though they were declared a terrorist organization, and most of them were arrested. So this idea of using the oppressor's own election system to create a parallel government was a real innovation that, that uh, Griffith came up with. I love the Irish spirit. What can I tell you? <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's, that's absolutely amazing. That's brilliant. That must have, I would have loved to have seen the faces of the, the British rulers when this was happening. Just totally befuddled. They're not a damn thing they could do. You're not going to go out and right. shoot people. You know. Right. Never, of course, underestimate the power of women. As the ancient Greek story of Lysistrata illustrates, <clears throat> you write that the usual stories framing of violent versus reformist methods in Irish nationalism is true as far as it goes, but also incomplete. What it misses is the powerful third tradition of radical, extra-legal, but still nonviolent resistance. So the Ladies' Land League, the power of women, tell us about them and what they did. Yeah, so like much of history, the, the role of women in these movements is overlooked. And um, most of the nationalist movements were still largely male-dominated. But you had the Ladies' Land League, which was um, sort of an auxiliary of the Land League. Um, and they were sort of a, a very sort of radical but nonviolent uh, push at the local level to conduct rent strikes. And um, and it's it's dangerous. So if, if I'm a tenant landlord and I'm want to withhold my rent, I could be evicted. And so the Ladies' Land League not only encourages people to not pay their rent, but gathers money to help those who've been thrown off their land or people who are in prison taking care of their families. And so they, they provided a radical yet still nonviolent kind of creativity at the local level that helped um, resist British rule by, by local authorities through rent strikes and boycotts and things like that. And then many were also active in the Irish independence movement, both uh, violently, so um, some of the uh, participants in the Easter Rising were women, um, but also uh, nonviolently, this idea of of resistance, boycotts, um, resisting conscription, parallel government, these kinds of things. Women were involved in these as well. Of course, that that's really uh, very, very exciting. I, I must say, and it reminds me back during the uh, 
official Great Depression in the early 1930s here in America, a lot of people, working class people, organized when the banks threw people out uh, and there were evictions. They moved the furniture back in and they resisted uh, very much, nonviolently, and uh, it helped create a lot of sympathy for the movement against the uh, the rule of the of the landlords, which is similar to uh, apparently what happened uh, in Ireland and lots of places around the world. I mean, banks and uh, you know financial houses are rather international. Yes, <laughs> there's mm-hmm. Helena Maloney's act of nonviolence. It was quite brave indeed. I hope I pronounced that right. Uh, tell us so, about yes. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Helena Maloney's act of nonviolence. Yeah, so she was an actress at the Abbey Theater, and the Abbey Theater was uh, kind of a center of nationalist um, resistance to British rule, both cultural and political. And she kind of, um, she and some others innovated something we kind of take for granted with nonviolent movements today. Is she was um, arrested when she tore up a uh, portrait of the king, so the king was making a triumphant inaugural. Um, tour of Ireland, um, and she had this nonviolent protest where she tore up a, a picture of the king, which was illegal. Um, she was arrested, but instead of paying the fine, she decided to take the jail sentence instead. And so we're, we're used to this from the civil rights movement in the U.S., where you basically flood the jails. You use arrest, a mass arrest, as a way to undermine the power of the, the oppressor. And so this idea of publicly and Gandhi will innovate this as well, or he'll, he'll take this on, publicly taking a jail sentence um, as a, a sort of an act of martyrdom, but also the more people who do it, the more difficult it is for the oppressor to find places to jail people, and the more public sympathy turns against them. So she and others were sort of innovating these kinds of techniques um, in the early, um, early 20th century. And, you know, nonviolent resistance, the idea of a general strike... Uh, my dad used to say that there's nothing more powerful than a general strike. Really hard to pull off because you've got to get everybody involved in it. But if you make the numbers big enough, I mean, I don't know if that's something we could consider here in America at some point uh, if things get bad enough. But, you know, it is a nonviolent, very effective non-cooperation. And Martin Luther King certainly knew that. Gandhi certainly knew that, and it has its roots in Ireland. Pretty, pretty proud, I'm sure. So there's, you know, in government, there's the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches of government. Uh, tell us, please, about the Dale courts. They must have really gotten under the skin of the British ruling class. Yeah, so it's, again, this idea of setting up a parallel government and stopping to no longer cooperating or following the laws of the 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 oppressor, but instead just doing your own thing. So when Dal Aaron was set up as a Irish parliament, again, it was declared illegal, actually literally called a terrorist organization, but it continued to operate underground. Uh, and then eventually local governments flipped their loyalty to Dal Aaron and stopped cooperating with the British crown. Um, and then ultimately, the, a big part of the way that British enforced their power in Ireland was through local courts. You had magistrates and um, the Royal Irish Constabulatory, which was the British police force in Ireland. Um, and so eventually the Dáil set up a system of parallel courts. Um, so if I had a dispute with a neighbor, rather than going to the British court, I would go to this new Irish court, kind of an underground illegal court. But for many people in the rural areas, it was seen as more legitimate. So you had this weird thing where the British courts were still functioning, but no one was going to them. Um, and so British law eventually became unenforceable, and instead, you had this parallel system of courts 
that would solve local disputes and, and kind of show that, you know what, Ireland can govern itself and become independent by acting independent rather than waiting for the British to give up. You just pretend like they're not there, um, and their rule kind of evaporates. So that was a real innovation that, that Sinn Féin and Griffith came up with in establishing these doll courts. Well, that that really is brilliant, I have to say. And again, it took a lot of chutzpah. Most, yeah. you know, most Americans don't know really much about the, the Irish Revolution. As you say, mainstream popular historical accounts give the violence more attention and credit for the revolution's outcome, often the romanticized accounts of leaders such as Michael Collins. A good movie fictionalized a little bit, I think. They, sure. They underplay or miss entirely other critically important aspects of the struggle because it's not as theatrical. How do you think violence compared as a successful tactic in making Ireland ungovernable and force the Brits to back down and eventually hand over power? I mean, violence, you know, it has its place, but, but wh- how do you think compared uh, in terms of being a successful tactic? Yeah, that's one of those difficult things to sort out, uh, because in this case you had both a violent element of resistance and a nonviolent element. Um, and just because the violent one gets all the attention yeah. doesn't mean nonviolence didn't play a role. But the, the other temptation might be for people like me who are big advocates of nonviolence to say, well, violence had nothing to do with it. I, I don't necessarily make that conclusion as well. So I think definitely... The IRA kind of innovated a lot of hit-and-run tactics and ambushes and assassinations. The, the, the war, the Anglo-Irish War, wasn't a pitched battle with, with regular armies. It was really kind of a terrorist kind of reprisal war. And so that definitely drained a lot of the British um, will to, keep, um, to stay in Ireland. It made Ireland ungovernable if you keep having people ambushed and things like that. Right. But if that gets all the attention, we also miss the fact that that Britain couldn't even govern Ireland because you suddenly had this parallel government system in place that was operating and the British couldn't collect taxes and they couldn't enforce the law. And so they really couldn't get what they wanted from Ireland, which was a, um, a peaceful, acquiescent, cooperative population. Mm-hmm. So nonviolence, I think nonviolence certainly played as much, um, if not more of a role in forcing the British out of uh, most of Ireland than, than the violent revolution that, that we make movies about. I tend to think you're right. Uh, you know, to me, violence, uh, just, you know, thrusting lead into the flesh of somebody else has got to be a better way to do it. You know, it yeah, just, yeah, and it just sets up the seeds for future, you know, the, the wave of violence in the 70s and 80s in Northern Ireland was a direct response to the outcome of, of the way the British left, just like the way they left India set up at the, the ongoing conflicts between Pakistan and India and Bangladesh. So uh, violence just leads to the next round of violence, whereas nonviolence has a much better track record empirically in not only being successful, but in laying the groundwork for a more democratic, peaceful outcome in the years following. And more justice, which is a good thing, I think. You know, yeah, definitely. In virtually all revolutions, there's the heated debate about the use of violence. Here in Trump's New America... There is something called Antifa. I think it's a very small group, but they've gotten some attention. Antifa, allegedly meaning anti-fascist. They physically assault people they perceive to be fascists. Some observe that they're more inspired by Batman cartoons than by political goals. I happen to think that's true. It seems to me such tactics actually play right into the hands of the bad guys. The fascists thrive on messy, frightening, violent attacks on them. 
are there lessons from the struggle of the Irish against the British rulers which might be learning opportunities for this situation? I mean, I, you know, I, of course, hate fascism, but I think Antifa is stupid, really. Yeah, I think one of the, the things to keep in mind is, and the Irish example illustrates this, is sometimes we think about working within the system um, and then working outside the system. And we assume in the system is nonviolence, so you're lobbying, you're trying to get people elected, you're signing petitions, and outside the system is violent. You're fighting in the streets and, and um, carrying out armed struggle. But what the Ireland example shows is you can have nonviolence outside the system as well, so illegal strikes and boycotts and things like that. Um, so you can be radical but also nonviolent. And the evidence tends to show um, one of the great researchers that we have working today is uh, Erica Chenoweth, and she studies nonviolence empirically. And one of the things she's found is that resistance movements that have what's called a violent edge, so they're largely nonviolent, but they do have a wing that will use violence in the streets or will carry out bombings and things like that, they tend to be less effective, precisely because of what you just mentioned, they alienate the larger, diverse population that a nonviolent movement needs. So the bigger the, the support for a nonviolent movement, the, the more diverse young people, old people, multiracial men and women, the more uh, large and diverse a movement is, the more effective it will be. But if they have a violent edge, that often turns people off and the movement loses that critical mass. So it's not that they're never successful, but generally a small, violent edge to a movement tends to do more harm than good. That's at least what the research shows. Well, I remember something here called the Weather Underground, the Weathermen. They, right. you know, There was a building, building, building anti-war movement, and the Weather Underground came out of the SDS as a violent faction. They wanted to bomb buildings, and they did bomb some buildings, and that they unintentionally killed some people. Right. That took, in my historical observation, that took the wind out of the sails of the anti-war movement. Nixon didn't know it at the time, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just it alienated people so much, and it's like, you know, how, I, could, I could see how it's logical. We've tried everything else. Now we've got to bring the war home, as they said. And it was, I think you're right, terribly destructive of the anti-war war movement and hopefully we, we can learn from that but you know it's always so much more you know like batman comics it's fun to beat up on guys you know and to yeah, smash yeah them. the temptation to use violence is, is pretty powerful and that's why a lot of nonviolent leaders like gandhi and king a lot of what they uh, worked on was keeping nonviolent discipline basically yeah. trying to, uh -huh. to maintain that commitment to nonviolence, not just for the moral reason but for the tactical. the tactical sure. importance of of keeping that discipline because if it uh, the, the picture of police beating up nonviolent protesters looks very different on TV than two groups battling each other with clubs in the streets. Um, so to, to maintain that asymmetry is a tactical advantage that uh, really is important. And as, as we, you know, just to close out here a little bit, we have a few minutes left. Uh, the important lesson, which is not nearly well enough known, I think, uh, you write that one of the most significant developments of the last century, the 20th century, is the emergence of organized civil resistance as an alternative to armed struggle. And you also say that what's tragically not widely known is how seemingly successful violent movements may actually owe much of that success to overlooked nonviolent techniques operating 
behind the scenes. And I think, you know, behind the scenes, that that's it's, it's pretty uh, important. You know, that's where, you know, you see on TV, you got the uh, the on the scene uh, hearings in Congress. But it's behind the scenes, the lobbying, the pushing. That's where the real action is. And that's clearly nonviolent. I get a little off track here. But in comparing the success of violent struggles to nonviolent civil resistance movements, non-cooperation movements of the 20th century, as a historian, what is, what is more likely to succeed against an oppressive regime or a foreign occupier? Yeah, well, fortunately, we have uh, some really good research on that. I mentioned uh, Erica Chenoweth. She and her um, co-researcher, uh, Maria Stefan, um, read a, wrote an amazing book I recommend to your listeners called Why Civil Resistance Works. And they basically looked at 300 cases, over 300 cases over the last century, of resistance to foreign occupation or domestic dictatorship. And they compared violent movements to nonviolent movements. And they found, using all the statistical controls, that nonviolence is twice as effective um, as violence when it comes to resisting foreign occupation or overthrowing a, a dictatorship. Um, uh, it succeeds about half the time, nonviolence, which is not a guarantee, but violence only succeeds about 24% of the time. So violence gets a lot of the attention, but the historical record is pretty clear that nonviolence, at least over the last 100 years, is twice as effective if you want to overthrow an oppressive regime or liberate yourself from foreign occupation. Nonviolence is twice as effective as armed struggle. Well, that's interesting. That's just actual empirical research. And I know that the, the Trump regime has stirred up hatred and violence. I mean, he's called for you know beating people up, sending them out on a stretcher and things like that. And that has appealed to a lot of people. People who are against the Trump regime not quite sure what to do. You know, it's it's scary to have that violence unleashed on us. But I'm guessing that there are lessons that can be learned that, that we can, you know, learn from history. It rarely happens, but we could. Uh, and, and and take some nonviolent resistance, uh, non-cooperation, uh, and, and that can be more effective if carefully chosen against the, uh, the hatred and violence of this uh, Trump regime. Yeah, and even if, I mean, I'm even thinking about uh, just in the last uh, few weeks where with the government shutdown and what finally, I think, um, convinced the president to back down was when air traffic controllers and right. um, TSA workers illegally um, but quietly mm-hmm. stopped showing up for work, and that almost brought our transportation infrastructure to a halt. So within a day, when it reached a critical mass, when you started seeing flights canceled up and down the eastern seaboard, he backed down. So that's just a, an example even of of workers, basically even illegally, because they, they were not sure. able to, to legally go on strike, basically doing a rolling work stoppage, and that is able to put a pressure point on our political system that, that um, can have a pretty dramatic impact. That's just a small example of how workers can get creative in ways that force the hand of the rulers. I love it. Well, I got your article from a, a website called uh, Waging Nonviolence, which I recommend to people. And I don't know if, if, if there are Internet uh, links that you can uh, suggest people go to to read more of your stuff. It's a fascinating discussion. Yeah, I've got some other stuff on uh, Waging Nonviolence. And then um, I have a book called Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War, uh, which is oh. sort of a larger treatise of nonviolence and the uh, the, an argument for why we can abolish war like we've abolished 
uh, chattel slavery and dueling and other forms of institutionalized violence. So mm. it's stuff I really like talking about and uh, writing about, and so that's why I'm so glad that you had me on and I could uh, uh, could hold forth on it. That's what we professors love to do. <laughs> True. What's the name of that book one more time? Um, um, Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War. Thank you so much for being with us and shedding light into this important overlooked area. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Be free.